You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Good morning, Kathy. I'm keeping well, and good morning to our listeners. So everything's going okay with the home situation and recording and being all producer-ish? Everything's well, coming now more, more manageable? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there for sure. Just uh, about a, a week ago, I started to started moving things around in my um, house here where I've been able to uh, bring up the computers to where my internet router is located right now. So mm-hmm. it, it's definitely in a better, I'm in a better uh, position right now in terms of my workspace, mm-hmm. which is uh, benefiting me, benefiting me greatly right yeah. now. It's, it's like I said, I think we talked about it last week. It's amazing what, what we've had to learn and how we have acclimated to the situation. And I think it's going to change a lot of things. I really do. I think people have become a lot more proficient in um, taking care of their own lives and spaces with not being able to go out. It's, it's you know, there are silver linings to all this, <clears throat> I have yes. to say. Yes, there um, definitely are. It, yeah, and uh, although I am really looking forward to getting back into the studio because uh, I do miss the the face to face and I miss the live shows. Honestly, I really do miss the live shows. Yeah. But soon um, enough, for sure. There, there's obviously a, a, a lot more prep that almost has to go into these pre-recorded programs. There, there but, is. But I think, uh, like you're very much uh, accustomed to, to now doing the, the live interactions, and it does feel. Uh, um, a lot less work, right? There's it a lot does less, now, yeah. Less work involved. But ultimately, what's important is that we get the great content out. So we yes. do what we do while we can. So Yeah, and today's show is going to be great. Today's show is going to be great. Um, and as you can tell, it is a taped show, so no opportunity for calling in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. Um, on all those different platforms and do feel free to email us. We are at thh at radiomaria.ca. If you have anything you'd like to share with us, we always love to hear from our listeners. And please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So, Alex, um, we've we had uh, Easter. I keep saying Thanksgiving. We had Easter a few weeks ago. And um, <clears throat> my son, who loves to cook, 
um, I was taking apart the turkey and putting it into the, the stock pot mm-hmm. and filling it up. And he said, what is the difference between broth and stock and bone broth? Because, you know, I'm a big bone broth person. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I looked at him and I, I, I with real confidence. And I said, I actually don't know. <laughs> so I couldn't, I had an, an idea. I had a really a, a solid idea of what I thought it might be, but uh, you know, and being that nutrition is something that I, I, I like to think that I'm somewhat proficient in. I was I like, guess, I guess that comes with the experience of trying to convince your kids of something when you're, when you're trying to, uh, when you're, um, you know, when they're growing up and you're trying to convince them, you have that uh, convincing face, but in the yeah. back of your mind, you're like, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> but now that they're adults and, and, and now with uh, you know, the advent of looking up something in a heartbeat, I thought, well, you know, I can't lie. So I just had to say, you know what? I don't know. And, um, and so as, as goes with me, the night went on and this, this just kept simmering and simmering. So the next day I oh, got on. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yes. oh, oh yeah. Actually that's a, yeah. So yeah, I kept simmering and simmering along with my uh, stock or broth or whatever the heck it ends up being, ended up being. Um, and so I, I thought, you know what, if I don't know this, there are probably lots of people who don't know what the difference between the three are. So I thought I would present this to you, what I found. Very good. I'm all ears. You're all ears. So here we go. Broth, not bone broth, but just simple broth is simmered with vegetables, herbs, seasoning, and sometimes meat. It doesn't have to have meat. Um, and it can include bones or not. So that's a really big piece. Um, it's cooked for a shorter period of time, usually about 45 minutes to two hours, and then it's strained. And it's commonly used just as a soup or as a soup base. So um, this is why it's kind of a tricky thing, because then when we talk about bone broth, which is much different, then, um, uh, well, yeah, actually, let's talk about the stock first. So let's talk then again, the difference between a broth and a stock. So a stock is vegetables and herbs, and it always includes bones. So stock always have to, has to have bones, and a broth does not. Um, and the bones can be roasted first. So again, this will be similar to a, a bone broth. So in a stock, has to have bones. They can be... Um, they can be roasted or cooked first. And this usually cooks for four to six hours. And the goal of a stalk is to extract the collagen from the bones and the connective tissue. So this to me, I, I had to read this a few times. I thought, well, this sounds like a darn bone broth. But anyways, we'll get to the difference. It's usually not seasoned or it doesn't have to be seasoned. And um, a good stock, and this is similar to a, a good bone broth, is that when it's chilled, it gets this gelatinous texture to it. Um, not as thick as a jello, but going in that trend. And because it is not seasoned, really, um, you put in the herbs, but you don't usually put salt and things like that, um, it doesn't have a lot of taste. So it's usually not served on its own. And this, you know, if you see on the cooking shows, they always seem to have a stock pot going and they use it to deglaze pans and they can use this as a soup base as well so those are the first two mm-hmm. and the reason that I, I switched and I left bone broth to the end is because bone broth is like a, a mix of the two a stock and a broth so bone broth is um, the base is like a stock so it's made from bones the real difference the real difference is that it is 
it always has bones, but it's cooked usually for more than 24 hours. So that, that's, that's the real difference. So a plain broth doesn't have to have any bones. So I don't know why they, they just can't make different names for all these things. Um, but a bone broth must have bones. And, and the difference between a bone broth and a stock is that the bone broth is cooked much, much longer. And the reason for this is that not only do we want to get the collagen from the bones, but we also want to get the minerals like amino acids, we want electrolytes and the calcium, all those wonderful things that are actually in the bones. We want to extract them. Mm-hmm. And that's why you put a bit of vinegar in a bone broth. And again, the common um, elements that uh, run through all of these three is that you can use it as a, as a soup base, which is fine, or deglazing. But the real, real benefit of bone broth, and this is, you've heard this before, is that uh, it's good for the gut. So because of this very long, long simmering time, it's really chock full of healthy things that are really good for the gut. So now you know the difference between all three. Thanks, Kathy. You're very welcome. I, you know, I think a lot of us think that that stock and broth are the same, but if you go to uh, a good culinary school, you can impress them now with our new knowledge. So on to today's guest. Our guest is Alicia Clark, and she is a Washington, D.C.-based licensed psychologist specializing in anxiety and relationships. She has been named one of Washington's top doctors by Washington Magazine, Washingtonian Magazine, and has served as adjunct clinical faculty at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. Her presentations on stress and anxiety have been sought after by numerous professional conferences and organizations. She is a regular contributor to Psychology Today, and she has been featured in a number of media outlets, including O, The Oprah Magazine, First for Women, and The New York Times. In her revolutionary new book, Dr. Clark recognizes anxiety as an unsung hero in the path to success and well-being. Anxiety is a powerful, motivating force that can be harnessed to create a better you if you've got the right tools. Hack Your Anxiety, her new book, provides a roadmap to approach anxiety in a new and empowering light. And she weaves together modern neuroscience, case studies, interviews, and personal anecdotes to demonstrate how anxiety can be reclaimed as a potent force for living our best lives. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Our learning points are how we can make our anxiety work for us, why we shouldn't avoid anxiety, and how we can begin to understand what our anxiety is telling us. So we will be back to talk to Dr. Alicia Clark in just a few minutes. Praise to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our King. To Him we will sing. In His great mercy He has given
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC. And as this show is being taped, unfortunately, there is no avenue for you to call in today. But if you have any questions after the podcast or if you would like more contact information on our wonderful guest, Alicia Clark, email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Kathy. It's, uh, it's still the sign of the times. We're still recording, so um, unfortunately we can't do this live, but that's okay. This is going to be evergreen, and we'll be able to go back to this wonderful information you're giving us, and it's really timely as well. Um, so we're going to be talking, you know, we framed the show around anxiety, which is, which is your real lane of expertise, but what made you go down this pathway in, in, your, um, in your career? Hmm. Uh, well, I've been a psychologist for about 25 years now, and I practice in Washington, D.C., and I really... I think I always called myself a generalist. You, you know, people come to therapy for a lot of different reasons. Um, and everybody's life is different and experiences are different. And I always found it a little difficult to specialize in anything. Um, but then after about a decade, I realized that there was one thread that sort of wove through everybody's um, complaints or experience in one way or another, and it was anxiety. Um, just the concern or worry about something you care about that could be at risk. I mean, it was sort of as simple as that. Um, And so I started getting more interested in anxiety as a concept and a construct and noticed that in almost every mental health diagnosis, there's some reference to anxiety, worry, stress. Um, It's many synonyms. Um, it's, It's in almost every diagnosis. And, um, and so I, I, I really started focusing on anxiety. And then there was kind of a phase two, which was looking at 
what actually was helping people with their anxiety. And what I found was that um, traditional ways of of coping with anxiety, or at least how I was taught in grad school, um, was to help people cultivate relaxation, um, help people um, recognize their irrational anxieties and and reframe them and um, and find ways of dismissing their irrational anxiety and fight back. There was a wonderful theorist, um, Albert Ellis, and he was he was fantastic and has something called rational emotive therapy. And his whole thing is you talk back to that anxiety. You do not let it win. It's, it's telling you lies. It's, it's telling you to be afraid of things you don't need to be afraid of. You're catastrophizing. It's just not going to happen. And that was kind of, you know, how I had thought about anxiety. Um, but what I was finding in my practice is that that was not working. Um, not all anxiety is irrational. In fact, um, in my view, much more of it is rational and reasonable than is irrational. And what was working for people was helping them recognize what they were worried about, find ways of, of, of recognizing it and embracing it, and then helping them feel more empowered to use their anxiety. Um, and so that's how, that's what I was noticing was working. And, and I, um, and and I reckoned, and and then I was it's kind of a long process, but <clears throat> I went looking for the science of why that was, and uh, and and books that I could give um, my patients that they could read in in um, parallel to their work with me. I'm a big fan of bibliotherapy, and and I found that there really weren't any books tackling anxiety in that way about how to tune into it and use it. Um, and that kind of began my deep dive into the science and the history of anxiety and, and was really the beginning of my five-year project of writing the book that came out um, a couple of years ago called Hack Your Anxiety. A five-year process to write the book? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Um, and a decade and before that, I'm kind of recognizing the concept. It's just that's how these things happen, you know, um, I think. I'm always I'm always in awe of people who can take that time to write a book, because I need to get things over and done with. I, I don't know. I mean, I I'm I, I think it's amazing that you have allowed yourself to go through this process of writing such an important book. I, I really mm-hmm. think it's a testament to to who you are. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wish I had that ability. So you you said a couple of things in there that kind yeah. of have resonated with me because of the way I approach health sort of in general, um, but also in sort of talking to my own kids. And apparently, apparently I've talked to them wrong, but that's okay. We'll, we'll go back and correct all that. Um, for me, health and things that go on in the body and say hormones or whatever, there's always a reason for things. So that spills over obviously in your understanding of emotions. So, you know, I was brought up with stress is a useless emotion. It just causes, there's no reason for it. But this is a completely different vantage point when we're looking at emotions. And it, it, it just buys into my understanding in a different area of health that nothing that our body produces is useless. There's always a reason for something. There's a reason that it's there. And now you're spilling this up into the mind. Exactly. And I think it's a great way for just your your understanding of this 
right now should be giving people a bit of relief, you know, that I'm not going crazy or this isn't a waste of my time. And has this completely changed your approach when you're working with your, your patients? Um, no question. I think my, my mindset has, has for many years honored, and I think this is true for most of us in psychology, has honored um, this idea that how you feel is meaningful and is worth understanding and our experiences um, and, and what's going on in our mind. There's really no way for us to change that experience unless we first turn towards it and try to understand it. So no question, I'm a big believer that things happen for a reason and they're worth paying attention to, just like a fever. There's a great quote in my book, and I can't remember whose who's it is, but uh, it opens, it, it's in there, and, it, um, and the quote is that emotions are like a fever, signaling something that's wrong that needs our attention. And I very much think of anxiety that way, that it is a it's a signal that something is wrong and that something might be wrong and that something we care about is at risk. And actually, when I dove into the science about this, it turns out that when we feel anxiety, we, um, parts of our brain are triggered that have to do with focus. So think about you're driving your car. Most of us aren't driving that much lately, but um, you drive your car and, and a small animal runs out in front of you. And without thinking about it, you, of course, slam on your brakes. It's a very fast, um, focused reaction and, and a solution all before you even recognize what happened. Um, anxiety does that. It harnesses our focus, laser focus. And the other thing it does is it motivates energy. So it motivates um, it motivates us to solve the problem. And those are our dopamine centers. Our whole dopamine circuit gets activated with anxiety too. So we need that energy and we need that focus to tend to the things that matter most. And right now, um, those of us who are feeling anxious, I, I almost wonder who isn't feeling anxious mm-hmm. um, when, we're, when we're looking at changing everything about our lives to, to fight and protect ourselves from a virus um, that's impacting our, you know, society and our loved ones kind of at every level. Um, of course, we need to focus. And of course, mm-hmm. we need to be motivated. And of course, we need to, that those concerns need to override other concerns. That's our anxiety working for us to keep us safe and protect our most important priorities. So absolutely, it matters. So is stress and worry and anxiety, are they the same thing? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> the short answer is in the brain, they pretty much are the same thing. Um, the, the more moderate answer is that it really depends on what those definitions mean to you. Um, they have separate definitions. And in my book, I talk about the different de- definitions. Worry, for example, is simply the, um, is simply the, the thinking about something happening. Um, it's, it's considered to be less experiential than, say, anxiety or fear, meaning we don't feel it in, in our body. But um, I don't know that that's really true for everybody. I think it's about how you label things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, too, with stress, um, technically the definition is of stress is a demand for change. That was um, Salehi's coining of the phrase um, uh, decades ago was that stress is the demand on the body for change. Um, 
and anxiety is considered a you know a concern about something happening in our resource and and our resources to navigate stress but you know one person might feel more comfortable saying they're stressed when really they're feeling anxious or vice versa so it's really in how we choose to explain how we're feeling and there's some really powerful new research about that very process of labeling our emotions is a core way that we can navigate them. Meaning that when we go to label our emotions, we're actually coping with them. How we choose to label something matters, and it's going to matter about how it impacts us. If I say I'm really worried about something versus I say I'm kind of concerned, the, the feelings that, that, that I feel are quite different by labeling them simply differently on that continuum. And it's true for um, all emotions. How we label them actually defines our experience of them. And this is Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. Um, she has a great book called How Emotions Are Made, and it compiles all of this latest science on, on the labeling of emotions, really constructing them for all of us. So how we label our emotions really constructs how we're going to feel them. So two things that have come out of that. First of all, physiologically, when we're talking about anxiety, stress, and worry, they are impacting um, hormones, cortisol level. Do you Mm -hmm. find that when you're deciphering between stress, worry, and anxiety, there's a different physiological um, stream or is it the same idea? Well, I, I don't know that there is research yet on um, the different labelings and the, and the physiological experiences. One of the tough things to really get at is, is what those emotions are, because your worry might be different than my worry might be different than a listener's worry. Um, so when they, when they go to study this, they, they have to come up with an agreed upon emotion, mm-hmm. and then they look at um, you know, what happens in the brain. The, the research that we have, though, insofar as it doesn't distinguish these subtleties of labeling, does show that when we're more broad in our labels, that our, that our experience of the emotion changes. So that, there's some research on label something as excitement instead of fear, and you will do better, you'll perform better, um, you'll feel less anxiety. There's very consistent data um, about across different experiences on that. And then as far as stress and cortisol is concerned, there was a huge study um, conducted at the University of Wisconsin that found that it wasn't so much our stress levels. And they studied stress and the impact of various stress levels against the impact of whether or not people thought it was dangerous. And then they measured those variables against who died. They measured them against death, um, death rates. And what they found, it was a, just a tremendously big study, was that the people who believed stress was not harmful, even at higher levels of stress, tolerated it better and did not have health, did not have health effects from the cortisol. And the opposite was also true. People who felt less stress but believed it was harmful actually had higher levels of harmful stress and they died. Um, They were more likely to not um, 
to not live. So what we do know from this really big study, and this is, and, and I'll tell you who, who talks a lot about stress, not anxiety, but stress is um, Kelly McGonigal. And she has a great TED talk. Um, I think it's called Making Friends with Stress, and, it's, and it surrounds a lot of this research. Um, and she also has a book, The Upside of Stress, really turning this idea on its head that stress is only dangerous if we believe it's dangerous. How we think about our experience actually impacts what's going on physiologically for us. So especially now when we are as stressed out as maybe we've ever been or having to manage anxiety about the what-ifs of this virus at every turn multiple times a day. You know, yes, we're all, we all have higher levels of cortisol, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be dangerous to us. If we know that this is our anxiety working for us and we know that we can handle it and our cortisol actually helps boost our immune system and it helps, um, it helps us think clearer. And so long as we sleep, so long as we rest and we, we have bouts of rest, cortisol will not hurt us. And that's what the science really shows. That is a profound shift it's in profound. the way most of profound. us, m- myself yeah. included, work mm-hmm. with people who are under stress. And everyone knows that I work with cancer patients mainly. And mm-hmm. that piece of information there is going to change the way that I talk to people. Oh, um, I'm so glad. Well, it's, it's key. It's, it's, you know, when I, in my verbiage, I say, you know, Obviously, you're under stress, and we learn to deal with it. But mm-hmm. to, to be able to twist it around and use it to an advantage, or not even to an advantage, but at least to say it's how you approach your stress and what you make of it, it's, it's, it's really connecting your head to the rest of your body. And that's exactly an amazing exactly. way and to look at things. There's strong research on, um, on cancer survival, um, it, and, and also um, recovery from heart. This is, um, I am familiar with this. This is out of um, uh, Mass General in Boston. Um, heart surgery recovery is better when you have a positive attitude and the mm-hmm. positive attitude um, being defined as seeing things, focusing on the silver lining, seeing things positively, as positively as you can. Um, resisting the catastrophizing, resisting making things negative. It's not so much catastrophizing, it's just recognizing we have a choice about how we view this and when we view this, our experience. And when we view things positively, it actually makes them more positive. And when we're not afraid of the stress, you know, stress well, is going too. to come with it. And yes. that's, that's a part of everyday life. And let's, let's teach people how this emotion because it's part of us, we can use it in a more positive path. It's that, that um, wow, I got a lot out of that. We're going to go to a quick break here and come back and continue this conversation because we really haven't even got into our wheelhouse here, which is anxiety. So we'll be back in a very short minute, everybody.
good father It's who you are It's who you are It's who you are And I'm loved by you It's who I am It's who I am It's who I am Oh, and I
You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. And I'm sorry we had to take that break because this is a, a great conversation with Alicia Clark about making our anxiety work for us. And after or just before we got to the break, we talked about this whole notion of embracing emotions and embracing anxiety. And I want to we are going to delve more into that. But Alicia, what would happen you know, obviously, this is not a common thread for people. So what happens when people are not embracing and understanding their emotions as you think they should? Right. Um, well, you know, we, we talked about that super scary research about the people who thought stress was dangerous, even at really low levels, um, actually didn't make it. Um, we know that heart, you know, heart recovery patients, and um, I, I, don't, I don't know the cancer research as closely, but um, we do know that, that when you have a negative attitude about things, things can be worse for your recovery and your health. Um, but when it comes to anxiety and other emotions, um, we also know that when, we're, when we allow ourselves to be afraid of our emotions, um, and particularly anxiety. So when we allow ourselves to be anxious or afraid of our anxiety, I call that secondary anxiety because it's the anxiety about the anxiety. This is really what, um, what increases our anxiety exponentially. Um, in fact, this is what happens with panic. Um, it's not so much the anxiety that puts somebody into panic. It's people's resistance of the experience of anxiety. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's happening? I'm, oh, what's happening? Am I, am I going to be okay? Um, and getting afraid of what's an anxiety, a threat response, a physiological um, anxiety that can happen as anxiety builds. Being afraid of that experience is what actually pushes people into panic. So it is the secondary anxiety about anxiety that will push you into panic. And in general, by, you know, as I began, I, it was anxiety that was the thread through everything I was seeing, depression, eating disorders, marital issues, relationship issues, family issues, all of that. It was the anxiety about their emotions that often kept them stuck and more than stuck, got them in a place where these very emotions were escalated and were causing them harm. And that really is the threshold for when is anxiety a problem is when it is causing you a problem in your life, when it gets in the way of you being able to do what you need to do in your life is, is when something becomes, as we say, diagnostic. Um, anxiety is a completely normal emotion, but when we allow ourselves to be afraid of it and we fight it rather than turning into it and using it as it's designed to help us adapt, we, we give it nowhere to go except to escalate and it turns back on itself. It's like it boomerangs on our, on our psyche and on our bodies. And that's how anxiety gets to overblown and overwhelm. Do we have to know, um, as a person going through anxiety, do we need to know the cause of our anxiety to deal with our anxiety? Is that necessary? Uh, 
Yes, ultimately. Um, if you don't know the cause of your anxiety, you just know that you're feeling anxious. Um, generally, a first step is to try to figure out what are you afraid of? What's going on? What do you care about that's at risk? It's very hard to know how you're going to channel that anxiety and use it to solve the problem it's signaling if you don't know what the problem is. Um, but all that being said, sometimes anxiety is really fuzzy and it's diffuse and it's multi-layered and complicated. And just even the description of anxiety about your anxiety, that's two separate channels of anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's what you're anxious about. And then your anxiety about your emotional experience. Um, so it can be challenging to, um, to tease it apart. That's a big part of what my book is about. And um, the online tools that that I offer to help people just sort through what are you anxious about. Um, it doesn't have to be complicated. But when it is complicated, there are ways to get at it and make it simpler. Well, the reason sort of I was kind of leading with that question is, is we're seeing, obviously, more and more younger people and children become mm. anxious. And as parents, the way you approach it and the way you are educating people can be a solid piece of, of developing a positively healthy, emotionally moving forward child but we mm. don't we're seeing a lot more now and i'm sure it's happening now even just with children as young as i don't know four or five wondering why they're not in school or why they're not going to their programs right. um how do we deal with the emotions you know obviously the emotions of a six or seven year old trying to deal with the sort of the current uh, situation we're in now with with the covid but in general how do we deal with uncovering and explaining emotions to children and, and, and to take it a step further? Why is it so important to make that an understanding and emotional comfortableness for them early on? Hmm. Okay, so there's a lot in that question. Yeah, sorry, it just kept evolving yeah, no, as I was talking no, to you. <laughs> it's, it's a tee up to one of my favorite soapboxes. Um, yeah, okay, is, good. <laughs> which is um, our emotional vocabulary, and and the you know the the answer there is if we paid half of the attention in educating our kids about their emotional vocabulary that we spend in teaching them vocabulary or even a different language. Um, we would have kids that, that really understand how to um, cope with, manage, and use their emotions more effectively. So I think it is as simple as kids not knowing how to describe their feelings. Um, and I say that because this is my work with, with parents, my work with adults, really is because in, in, in the work of teaching them, um, here are here are 50 different synonyms for how to describe your anxiety. I actually have that tool on, on my portal because people need it. They weren't taught all the, different, all the different labels for their emotions. They weren't even taught how to describe their feelings. Um, so if there's one thing as parents we can do, we can, we can really cultivate in our kids, and especially now when we've got more time with them and we've got reasons to be talking about uncomfortable feelings, to really help them articulate how they're feeling. It sounds 
it sounds like it's flimsy. It sounds like, ah, that can't be enough. But I cannot tell you how much goes into um, the, the teaching of just telling, a ch- encouraging a, a child to express themselves, to find the word, to say how they're feeling. And then for you as a parent to be able to say back, oh, yeah, you know what? I, I understand how you'd feel that way. How else do you feel? Ah, oh, yeah, because I kind of feel that way too. Yeah, I can understand that. It's hard not to be able to go to your school. It's even harder to not know when you're going to go back. And yeah, I understand you're missing your teachers and your sports. And yeah, what? how else do you feel? And you just keep pulling them to label it. By labeling it and by them saying how they feel, knowing that they are heard and understood by you, you are teaching them how to how, how to actually label and cope with their emotions. That is 70% of the work is just acknowledging how you're feeling and labeling it. And, and there is a lot of play that the most current neuro, neuroscience, as we talked about labeling earlier, there's a lot of play in how you label. So, you know, not to be obnoxious as parents. I mean, I know I, it's, it's easy to skip over this empathy, you know, asking piece and move into problem solving because, of course, we don't want our kids to suffer. And we might, we might also not really want to hear that they're anxious because we're anxious too and we're not really sure how we're coping. Um, but as you get more comfortable talking about it, then you can start to nudge. Well, are you feeling sad or are you just feeling a little, does it just kind of feel new and weird? Um, are you feeling uh, scared of the virus or you just, or you just sort of not sure you understand it? Um, and those are just off the top of my head, sort of mm-hmm. just mo- slight modifications. The, the, the research on nudging our, nudging our labeling so that we can push it a little more positively is super powerful in taking control. And, and when you do that with a kid, you're teaching them how to do it. And you're doing it together. You're telling them there's nothing wrong. You know, implicit is there's nothing wrong with your emotions. I value them. I can handle them. I love you. I can handle them so you can too. We're going to be okay. We're in this together. You are loved. I mean, all of those messages are implied by just having the conversation about the emotions. And and we know from you know, from psychology and, and from family dynamics, this is actually what we need as human beings in managing our emotions. We need to know it's going to be okay. And we need to know that we can handle them. Um, and we need to know how to handle them. And, you know, the best thing that we can do as parents is teach kids how to label them. Labeling it is the bulk of handling it. Um, what you do with it is the second piece. And I think as parents, we're really good at teaching our kids solutions or brainstorming solutions. I kind of don't really, I don't think we need to tell listeners how to do that because that is what most of us do. It's this other piece that comes before it, the empathy piece and the labeling the emotions and really pausing and letting the emotions breathe um, and letting letting them know they're going to be okay. That's that's the real power in teaching emotional resilience that I think we all have an opportunity for in COVID and, but, and always. And, and always. But the, the, the thing that I think, you know, looking back, raising my kids that I, I probably didn't do properly is 
trying to say, you know, don't worry about it, like leaving it as that. And we don't want to imply to the kids or to our children that the emotions are silly. Like you don't need to worry about that. That's just, and that, that um, I think is a piece of the puzzle that maybe some parents don't quite get um, because we may not agree that it's silly. And honestly, there, I can look back and, you know, when, when one of my kids got anxious, like, like, why bother? Like, why are you doing that? It doesn't even make sense to get anxious. And, and, and that was sort of, my way of saying it's going to be okay, like that, that's not logical to think that way, which is wrong, going down this path. Absolutely well, wrong. It just skips over the, it's <laughs> not wrong. You might, that might be exactly where you land ultimately in those last 10, 15, 20% of the, you know, of the coping. But what we skip over when we tell a kid, you don't need to worry about this, is we skip over empowering them in, in recognizing their emotions and in them feeling comfortable with their emotions. Because when we tell them not to feel something, we don't mean to, but we're also shaming them for feeling it. Mm-hmm. We're saying that was, that was silly. That was, you don't need to do that. No, you shouldn't feel that way. Like, I mean, we've probably been told that by people in our own lives. I mean, does that ever help? No, Exactly. <laughs> never helps. And it just layers on a secondary experience of, oh, wow, what's wrong with me? Something really must be wrong with me that I feel that way. What am I going to do now? Um, I'll, I'll tell you one of the, the biggest um, advantages of doing this podcast and meeting experts like you is yeah. I'm going to be a solid grandmother because I've been pointed out so many oh. ways that I've gone wrong <laughs> raising yeah. my own kids. It's, uh, you know, all of this. I mean, it really, when we, we talked about some of these things, it was really eye-opening for me. I think it's, uh, you know, why why we have waited this long to understand that emotions are a huge piece of our health. Um, I, I don't understand. You know, I, it, it's amazing that we've, it's taken this long. Um, but then again, that's why we need people like you to spend five to 10 years honing in on all this and, and writing and telling us. I think it's, it's, it's a profound way to look at emotions. And I think that developing emotional health, I've always thought that everything, you know, health started from the head down. But yeah. until our conversation here, um, that is even more profound. Um, well, and the we science emotions. Is, the, the science is catching up with this now, yes. and that's. I, I think that that goes a long way to add credibility to the message that you know has been out there. It's not like this is a new message necessarily, um, but the science helps us gives us another tool to understand why this is working and why this is useful. And no parent sets out not to be empathic because they don't care. It takes time and it takes energy and it takes, and it, it takes patience and, and a willingness to stop what you're doing and, and listen and have a conversation if you can, rather than just say, you know what, let's not, we've got to get to school. Don't, you don't need to worry about your socks. They look fine. I mean, there, there are good reasons why we say these things. So this is not to shame any of us that, you know, that make these mistakes. It's just to know that it's very empowering to listen. And I think when we have opportunities where anxiety is so normal, um, it's, and we're all feeling it, we've got real opportunities to talk about it and practice being resilient. This is how we're going to come out of this 
resilient and with our kids more resilient is knowing you know it's normal to feel how you're feeling let's let's talk about our feelings and when we talk about them they're not so scary um, there's nothing wrong with us that we're feeling this way and you know in this busy busy going society you know I, I try and look at, at you know this this time out that we're taking right now and you know I try and do it philosophically every once in a while and this is a great time to work on this piece of our parenting because we're so busy all the time, whether or not we're running in and out of the house or looking at computers or whatever. In order to cultivate this health, the, the implicit thing that you're telling us is that it does take time and it does take a conversation and getting back to old school and sitting around the table and dinner talks and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's essential to, to mental health. And this is a, a Beautiful timing for for us to have this message come out to to my listeners, mm-hmm. because now is the time that they can take this time and work with their kids. I think it's it's vital. It's really vital. This interview has gone so much beyond um, what I had pictured it. it. It's it's been great talking to you. Um, I really oh, appreciate you, you taking the time. Where oh, can I people appreciate you having me? Oh, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's so really important. it's it's been a we wonderful talk. We do need this. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just talking to you makes me feel better um, talking in, in the way to approach. So thank you for that piece and thank you for joining us. But before we, we go, I definitely want you to give you space to talk about the book, where they can find you um, and everything that you've got going on surrounding it. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, so my book, Hack Your Anxiety, uh, you can, well, in Canada, um, you should be able to get it on Amazon, actually. But, um, but I'm offering through my website, which is um, dralishaclark.com forward slash book. I'm offering a, um, some online tools to go with the book, including um, an audiobook version and, um, and this vocabulary cheat sheet. So I've talked a lot about nudging your vocabulary and just practicing your vocabulary around anxiety. That I, I offer free with the book, as well as just understanding the different, the different ways anxiety um, could impact you, the different faces of anxiety. So those are some of the basic bonuses that are free with the book if you buy it through my website, but you can also get it on, on Amazon. And then through that same website, I'm offering a free tool um, for COVID-specific anxiety. So it's about 18 modules and I'm adding to it as I go on. And they're, they're sort of compilations of the things that I'm hearing as I'm working with people um, and what's, what's useful, um, what are some ways to tackle things like grief or, you know, how to deep belly breathe and why that can help and what are some um, grounding techniques and how do you know the difference between a breathing problem and uh, COVID related and tightness in your chest from anxiety. So mm-hmm. just a whole lot of different pieces. And that is at that same website, the DrLeishaClark.com, but forward slash Corona. And that's the opt-in. And I'll, um, if you sign up for it, you'll get free access to, um, to the portal that has those tools with videos and readings and worksheets um, to help you during this um, incredible time we're all in. 
Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, when the, the podcast comes out after the airing of the show, all the information will be there. So obviously you'll be able to um, look for all this um, on, on Alicia's site. Alicia, again, thank you so much for joining. It's been a wonderful interview. Um, oh, really appreciate you, having you here. It's been a real pleasure. I love talking about this stuff and I, I really hope your listeners will be able to make some good use of, of it um, as they as they go forward in their life with anxiety because we're all feeling it right now. We're all feeling it now. Yes, thank you so much. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.